Welcome. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Welcome to episode 178 of Green and Growing in the Garden, the weekly gardening show for the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service. I'm Hugh Ralston, your host and producer, and I look forward to sharing with you over the next 40 minutes updates to our local garden scene, as well as recent articles about gardens, plants, designers here in California and around the world. Gardens are in my DNA. I was raised in a family of gardeners, and my grandparents and mother handed down a love of flowers, of orchids, and of roses, among many other gifts. I have been an inveterate gardener for years. From that first six-pack of marigolds I bought at Home Depot in suburban Connecticut to laying out birthday rose gardens, planting fruit trees, and rescuing overgrown and underloved gardens, as well as building a garden library from classic design text to glossy coffee table indulgences. I've spent years getting to know California's Mediterranean garden landscapes, plants, and climate, even as I have fallen for English and continental garden design traditions, grown fond of the particularities and peculiarities of succulents, which perform so well in our climate, and learned to love and respect the quiet power of Japanese gardens. I have been active in local garden societies and visited botanical gardens around the world, believing not only in the benefits of gardening itself, but of being in the garden, and of being charmed by that special alchemy of plants, climate, soil, design, place, and space. Gardens are a place where we can become more alive and more connected with the world we share with others. And, as the good book reminds us, it all began in a garden. Welcome to this week's show. With a lot of global attention still focused on climate change and the meeting in Sharm el-Sheikh, our first article this morning is from the London Times, published on November 14th. Climate change is a thorn in the side of rose growers. Commercial flower growers have been forced to retire some of the most popular varieties of English rose because of global warming. The nearly thornless pink of climbing variety, a Shropshire lad, and the crimson-petaled Munstead wood are among those that have been withdrawn from sale by the grower David Austin Roses. Tim Smith, its operations director, said cultivating varieties resilient to climate change had become a key consideration, and some customer favorites had been withdrawn. We cannot stand still and observe as we see diseases and pests evolve as climates change threatening the health and success of some of our most popular varieties, he told The Guardian. This means retrialing all our releases and, in some instances, retiring very popular varieties. Whilst these plants may still perform in some conditions, in the long term we recommend alternative varieties that are better suited to the changing environment. Roses are not well suited to hot, dry locations. And climate change is also helping fungal pests to thrive, increasing the need for breeders to introduce genes from more disease-resistant plants. The Munstead wood variety, which was cultivated in 2007, is reported to have been ravaged by pests. Some growers have begun planting roses in hot, muggy climates, including Florida in the U.S., and 
Shenzhen in China to test for how conditions are expected to change in the UK. Simon Toomer, a curator at Kew Gardens, said that over hundreds of years, roses had been bred from wild species to select showy flowers and scent. Selection had also been influenced by resistance to disease, such as black spot and mildew, which had become more damaging with climate change. An article published in the Times of London on Monday, November 14th. Climate change is a thorn in the side of rose growers. Continuing with our focus on roses, we turn now to Robin Lane Fox's November 11th column in the Financial Times, The Irrepressible Rose. I've never expected much from roses in November. A few flowers used to open on the invaluable monthly China rose, Rosa chinensis. I used to pick its buds after Remembrance Sunday, wrap their stems in damp silver foil, and store them for a month in an airtight box. Then taken out and unwrapped, they would open in time for Christmas. Otherwise, frost browned all the rosebuds I might have picked for a final bowl indoors. Not so 2022. Roses have been unstoppable. They have had a second, even third flowering, which has been a joy after the heat of the dry summer. Without going near the floral counter of a supermarket and buying roses flown in from Kenya, I still have two bowls of them, freshly picked. During this summer's long drought, roses battled on surprisingly well. If they flowered, they dropped their petals within 48 hours, but if they already had a season in open ground behind them, they came through the stress without loss. When rains returned and the autumn sunlight became heavenly, they reveled in the mild autumn. Not for nothing are they Britain's favorite flower. The rewilding lobby can offer only a tangle of dog roses from a scruffy English hedge, once flowering, minimally scented, and limited to shades of pale pink and off-white. How boring. Breeders continue to improve and extend the rose's beauty, unhampered by back-to-nature rhetoric. The difficulty is to keep up with the best of the progress they make. The many varieties of rose bred by David Austin and his team have a firm grip on most English garden centers, but they do not have a monopoly on value and beauty. My horizons have just been widened by a book based on wide experience and practical authority. RHS Roses by Michael Marriott is published by Dorling Kindersley in partnership with the RHS, 24.99 pounds. It is ideal for anyone wanting advice and a way through the proliferating jungle of roses. Marriott spent 35 years with David Austin and his rose nursery, helping it become a worldwide supplier for gardeners and designers. He has planted thousands of rose borders and rose gardens all over the world, including a David Austin rose garden near Osaka in Japan, rose plantings at Kew, Hampton Court Palace, and, he reveals, a garden in Bhutan to mark the marriage of the country's king and queen. Over the years, he's kept me up to date with an ever-enlarging range of Austin roses, but his book now ranges more widely. He looks beyond the Austin range at Al Brighton, to varieties from other growers, admired by him but less familiar to his readers. He has much to say that will help gardeners outside Britain. I have found no end of good varieties, unfamiliar to me, in his book. In a short section on reinventing the shrubbery, 
a worthy aim, Marriott recommends the use of taller shrub roses, including Claire Martin, a semi-double whose flowers open from a shade of peach to pale pink. It is outstanding, he writes, for the freedom with which it flowers from early summer until the cold stops it. Roll on Claire Martin, then, though it responds to generous feeding and good soil in order to keep it going for so long. Marriott suggests deep pink vanity as a companion, or even the multicolored mutabilis, a chop choice for dry gardens near the Mediterranean. Roses for tight spaces is a chapter with an especially helpful future. Hitherto, I have missed some first-class options. One is absolutely fabulous, launched on the market from Canada in 2004 and known in the U.S. as the Julia Child Rose after the famous expert in the kitchen. It is three feet high at most and has golden yellow double flowers that fades to cream white. Marriott confirms that it is particularly free flowering and healthy with a scent that some compare to aniseed. It grows happily in all sorts of climates and is a firm favorite in many parts of the world. It is an excellent choice for a big pot or tub. Sweet Honey looks charming too, about three feet high and nearly as wide. It has beautifully shaped flowers that fade from soft apricot to cream and is very healthy and perfect for small borders or as a hedge. What about dark scarlet Miss Edith Cavell? Two feet high, semi-double, and repeat flowering. It is a sport from the old Orléans rose and would brighten up any courtyard in a pot. For a narrow border, it looks as if Catherine Zymet is worth tracking down too, as Marriott considers it to be one of the longest flowering roses. It is a small Paliantha variety with masses of white flowers whose impact is cumulative, if not individual. I have missed out on it. For Growing Up and Over, his chapter on roses on pillars and obelisks to climbing roses for sun and shade and roses for wild gardens, Marriott gives invaluable advice. Topics are covered concisely and individual roses are shown with excellent color pictures. As there is no space for a comprehensive list, my beloved Buff Beauty and the fine Floribunda Chanel are among those that do not feature. I have never noticed what Marriott describes as the notable fragrance on climbing Rambling Rector, though it dominates my hedges in midsummer. I have not thought before of some of the Austin roses as choices for meadow gardens, the Lady's Blush or Comte de Champagne being two, he suggests, if kept clear of invasive grasses immediately around them. I am pleased he endorses the thorny rose Spinosissima, one that hot summers do not kill. It is a parent of the repeat flowering Stanwell Perpetual, and others more recent that I will track down and grow. In containers on paving, Marriott suggests repeat flowering roses, including the scented Herzogin Christiana with rounded pink flowers, or Natasha Richardson, also pink with a strong scent that he compares to citrus. Golden Beauty is a prize winner he commends for a hot balcony, a useful bit of advice and the old variety Marie Pavier is still one of his picks for an almost continuous season of pale pink in a container. I knew none of them until his pictures and descriptions brought them to life. He well reminds gardeners that roses grown in pots or containers need regular watering if they are to match up to those in his lovely pictures. Can we now replant rose beds with the better ones he has chosen from a lifetime of experience? Specific replant disease is sometimes a danger, affecting roses planted where roses have already been grown for years. I have never found it a problem, but old advice applies. 
Dig out the soil around the previous roses and replace it with fresh, leafy compost as freely as possible. At worst, the new roses will become stunted, but the risk is not so great that replanting is a bad idea. In climes where winter is equivalent to a temperate season's summer, Marriott advises, most repeat flowering roses will produce their best flowers in autumn and later. We are heading in that direction in Britain. It's a little warming dividend in the attendant worry and danger. Most recent column by Robin Lane Fox, published on November 11th in the Financial Times, The Irrepressible Rose. Turn next to an article in Country Life magazine by Angelica Gray, published on November 11th. 2017. Sense and Sensibility. The roses grown for an ancient perfume in a magical Marrakesh garden. Ancient country roses cultivated for a centuries-old perfume industry are among the horticultural treasures of a welcoming retreat on the fringes of Marrakesh. The Beldi Country Club is a bucolic retreat for frazzled city dwellers, just a 10-minute drive from the Medina Walls, in the direction of the Atlas Mountains. There is no golf course, no members-only rule or strictures to keep off the grass, just an ocean of gardens dotted with biscuit-colored vernacular buildings. Owner Jean-Dominique Le Marie explains that he wanted to create the feeling of a rural doir or village, with winding streets and gentle rammed earth architecture. Could this place be near in spirit to the garden city of Marrakesh described by travelers over the centuries? That may be a romantic notion, but it is clear from the minute you arrive at the Beldi Gates that romance is something Jean-Dominique does well. The perfume in the air is extraordinary. Before you catch even a glimpse of garden, the delicate complex scent of roses invades you like a magic potion conjured up by some benevolent jinn. The Rose Garden, which welcomes visitors to the Beldi, has understandably become the signature of the club. A wide, formal path flanked by tunnels of bougainvillea lead into the complex, but it is impossible not to stop and admire the sight of 13,330 rose bushes arranged in two blocks on either side of the central feature. This was the first garden created on the site in 2005. Marrakesh has a thriving rose production industry based at La Targa, which collapsed after independence in the 1950s, but Jean-Dominique was keen not to use commercial varieties. He sourced his more rustic stock from old gardeners who had worked in the industry as young men and still had knowledge of what they call country roses. It is perhaps this piecemeal approach to gathering his plants which has produced the charming rural meadow effect with roses of all hues seemingly placed randomly, without any self-conscious attempt at artful color-coordinated drifts. Roses feature widely in the city. Indeed, Marrakesh is often referred to as the rose among the palms, and they have been used en masse in municipal bedding schemes, such as those near the airport. The Arabic word beldi translates as traditional, but in Morocco it evokes the authenticity of country life, of things well-made in an artisanal fashion, and a certain pride in native culture. Beldi is also a variety of olive much grown in the region, which is cured at different stages of maturity to produce fruit of every shade, from green to pink, 
purple, and black. The two meanings come together on this site with the olive trees of the original plot integrated into the garden and the clear commitment to traditional construction materials and artisanal decoration. The traditional and the olive are both present in the intimate, neutral-toned courtyard garden which follows the rose garden. The space is enclosed by walls constructed in pise using local clay mixed with straw. The straw is visible in the finished surface, chopped up but fresh-looking as if the walls were made of dung from a farmyard. A collection of old country-style wooden doors decorated with geometric designs is displayed against the walls, with a single olive tree standing tall in the center of the space, Beldi. Jean-Dominique modestly declares that he is no garden expert, but as in all the best gardens, it is his personality and vision which has shaped the guiding principles here. He resists the notion of design, saying that the gardens developed gradually as land became available, one following the other, each expressing a different idea but looped together loosely in a promenade. He favors a spontaneous approach to garden making, a basic idea followed by the gathering of plant materials which is then planted up in collaboration with his team of gardeners. He admits that he sometimes has to tweak the results, but believes that involving the gardeners at this level gives them a particular pride and a sense of achievement which bears fruit. The artisans responsible for the hard landscaping have been given the same liberty, creating charming pebble motifs in the paths. The grass garden contains a series of hideouts where guests can sit privately with a drink among the shimmering stems of fountain grass, set with large specimen agaves. While the design is thoroughly modern, there is an informal, playful quality here which shakes off any designer look. The pampas pool has two rows of stately pampas grass, Cortaderia siloana, lining a rill flowing into a small square pool. It's hard to believe that this is the much maligned 70s favorite as their white plumes shine in the late October sun, alive with small birds feeding on the seed heads. There is much to enjoy elsewhere. The humorous dichotomy of the agave pool, where a shallow square pool is studded in the four corners and central island with drought-resistant agave americana, the small cactus garden, the tiny corridors of the botanic garden, or the walls made from large terracotta pots stacked on simple wooden shelves in the lily pool garden. As the evening closes in, the bird song becomes clamorous and conversation halts for a moment to enjoy the recital. This is a happy, healthy garden, one which Jean-Dominique describes as Eden, as he mounts his battered cream bicycle to go and check on his mischievous flock of guinea fowl. This article is extracted from Gardens of Marrakesh by Angelica Gray, published by Francis Lincoln, an imprint of the Quarto Group, 14.99 pounds. And this is published in Country Life magazine on November 11, 2017. The roses grown for an ancient perfume in a magical Marrakesh garden. We turn to a Robin Lane Fox column published on the 21st of October. God's Country, the Italian gardens where popes have trodden. From Urban VIII to the current Pope Francis, holy men have enjoyed havens in and around Rome. During the lockdowns, I really 
missed Italy. Of course, I missed friends, family, and uncertificated travel too, but visits to Italy have been yearly events in my life. I have just corrected the absence and spent time in gardens near Rome, one of them already familiar, another new to my eye. New for me are the papal gardens at Castel Gandolfo, about 15 miles southeast of the city. They are now open to the public. In the 17th century, Pope Urban VIII began the practice of commissioning formal gardens on a hillside above the exquisite Lake Albano. Others followed suit, and in the 1960s and 1970s, Pope Paul VI loved the site as a summer retreat. He became a helipope. In 1975, he began to travel from Rome to Castel Gandolfo by helicopter, unaware carbon fumes might damage what he regarded as God's creation. It was during a summer withdrawal to Castel Gandolfo that he died in 1978. The current Pope Francis prefers the city, an urban pope indeed, and since 2014, it is he who has made the gardens accessible to paying visitors. The helipad is not part of his weekend planning. The main papal gardens run on three terraces, one above the other, with fine views over the lake and vast plain below. They were taken over from the great Barberini family, themselves a source of popes in 1929. The terraces are still held up by the supporting walls of Rome's most feared emperors, Domitian, who ruled from AD 81 to 96. Long before the popes, Domitian had a palace on the same hillside. By the end of his reign, he was proclaiming himself equal of the god Jupiter. In his own way, he wished to be considered infallible. Domitian's palace above Lake Albano is still only partly known and understood. Visitors to it could never feel safe and secure. On the lake, Domitian used to insist that he be towed in a small boat on a very long rope behind a man-powered galley so that he would not be irritated by the sound of its splashing oars. In his gardens, he had a small theater, clad in multicolored marble, in which he would meet delegations from the Senate, whom he obliged to travel out to him from Rome. The most impressive ancient survivor in the gardens is a huge brick-built portico, more than 300 yards long and very high, it once led visitors to the hillside to encounter Domitian, the self-styled equal of Jupiter. In the 1940s, it became a refuge for many of the local town's residents, who had to shelter from nearby Allied bombing. The families included pregnant women, some of whom gave birth in a bedroom given over for the purpose in the Pope's own residence. The babies became known as the Pope's children, a category long in abeyance. If they were boys, many of them were christened with his name, Pio. On Galdolfo's main terrace, the aging trees are most impressive, evergreen holm oaks and fine pine trees, Pinus pinea, whose rounded heads were compared in antiquity to big mushrooms. The garden's star attraction is the view from the first terrace onto the parterre beds of the second one below. They are hedged with box, still free of blight and moth, and are densely planted for summer and autumn with white and pink fibrous-rooted begonias. These beds were introduced in the 1930s, based on old prints of the terrace when owned by the Barberini family. Spreading bushes of rosemary punctuate the walkways from which they are best viewed, together with that Italian staple, myrtle. This long terrace of papal bedding out is most impressive. The begonias are replaced yearly by flowering plants for spring. As the terrace progresses, it becomes less tidy, so I walked down to see what was going wrong. 
There is plenty of grass and green weeds in the further beds, but the papal gardeners are not aspiring to rewilding. They have not looked after the full display. After a very dry summer, they need to go back to reweeding. Keen garden watchers will certainly enjoy Castel Gandolfo. They should not be deterred by a previous visit to the Vatican Gardens in Rome. Popes have enjoyed walking there, too, and the current Pope Francis has used the hard surface paths under the garden's trees for his personal jogging. Entry tickets give access to features and fountains, but neither they nor the level of gardening are distinguished. An artificial grotto mimics the grotto at Lourdes, complete with a white statue of the Wonder Shrine's Bernadette. To one side, a pile of jumbled stones contains fibrous rooted begonias, rose-red only. I give it very low marks. The Vatican Gardens publicized their blend of styles, English, French, and Italian. For a blend of history and beauty, the place to visit is Ninfa, the lovely garden near Simonetta, another 25 miles beyond Castel Gandolfo, when heading southeast beyond Rome. Ninfa, too, has a papal connection. When the garden was still a populated town, Pope Alexander III was crowned there in 1159 in one of the churches, whose ruins still make a heavenly setting for roses such as mermaid and white rock. In 1381, the town was ruined by feuding and fighting, but in the past hundred years or so, it has been given new fame and life by members of its owning Catani family. Greatly helped by American and English wives in the family, Ninfa became a garden unlike any other, fed by copious water, set among ruined medieval buildings and planted by owners with an exquisite sense of plants and space. I first wrote about it in 1987, just after the death of Hubert Howard, husband of the modern garden's presiding genius, Lelia Caetani, a lifelong painter and thoughtful gardener. She was well described by a contemporary as a shy beanpole. Since 1987, Ninfa's visiting days have multiplied, and its fame has spread to TV screens, often with commentators who are at loss to name its loveliest roses. It has been masterminded by its overseer, Lauro Marchetti, who has maintained the standards instilled in him from early youth by the owners. After 35 years of service, Marchetti has stepped aside from the garden's daily running. Its gorgeous springs and rivers have become even more at risk to droughts and alternative uses beyond the gardens. Fields of kiwi fruits now line approaches to Ninfa, crops that need copious irrigation from its river. In its first lockdown, Ninfa drew 60,000 visitors, flocking to beauty in the open air. Crowds are a challenge for any garden, but especially for one planned as a refuge. After 120 days without rain, the garden at Ninfa is still green and entrancing. The water levels of the river have been raised slightly by controllers of dams further up the valley. Even in October, there are flowers on the Caetani family's choice of roses, led by La Follette and copper-pink General Shablikaine. Agrippina, the Emperor Nero's mother, was never so lovely as the scarlet rose named after her, which enjoys a second flowering on Ninfa's walls. Primetime viewing at Ninfa is May, but a pre-booked ticket is necessary. GiardinoDiNinfa.eu gives details. So far, all is well at this idyllic haven in Italy. A column by Robin Lane Fox published on the 21st of October in the Financial Times, God's Country, the Italian Gardens Where Popes Have Trodden.
And finally, this week, an article by Jane Owen, published on the 14th of October in the Financial Times, How to Inherit a Garden, the Complexities of Horticultural Legacy. Some gardens and landscapes are works of art that deserve to be left to posterity. But unlike an oil painting of an enigmatic smile or stainless steel sculpture of a balloon dog, their changeable nature makes them tricky legacies. Owners get a buzz out of adapting their garden after a feature tree falls, an obelisk crumbles, a gnome escapes, a stream decides to dry up, or a pivotal plant variety succumbs to disease. But faced with the same problems, what should an inheritor do? Should inheritors stick to the garden's design and original planting? Should donors impose conditions? How should inheritors deal with benefactors' wishes? Plus, Rio, a pretty one-acre garden overlooking Cardigan Bay in Wales, was given to the National Trust in the mid-20th century on the condition that, among other things, the wild bees should not be disturbed and the yew and box hedges should be preserved. The former condition is fine. Admirable even, but the latter is tricky as box is victim to three types of blight, phytophthora, root rot, and box tree caterpillar, to say nothing of various scale insects, red spider mite. You get the idea. Perhaps then it's no surprise that the trust has become increasingly picky about what it takes on. But in the past few decades, alternative solutions are emerging for bequeathed gardens. Great Dixter in southern England is one such. Christopher Christo Lloyd's garden has continued to thrive and evolve since his death in 2006. His gardening style was rebellious, and his infamous gesture against pastel flower colors back in the 1990s set the tone for continuous rebellion at Great Dixter, which is now headed by Fergus Garrett. Since Christo's death in 2006, I have used pastel colors about five or six times, but every time I do, it, it raises eyebrows, says Garrett. This year in the solar garden, I have used gray on gray predominantly, and it looks great, but not to everyone's taste. Next year, it will probably be shocking magenta and scarlet, but only if the wind takes us that way, never as a result of yielding to public pressure. It's important not to copy so much as to keep the sense of adventure, whimsy, joyousness, strong work ethic, inquisitiveness, and pass all that on, says Garrett who learned his skills at Christo's knee. Christo set up the trust, and we chose trustees together and made me director. Great Dixter is a small charity, says Garrett, that works hard to break even. With a turnover of more than a million pounds, it supports 50 full-time and part-time employees, including guides. We could open for weddings and have a restaurant to make more money, but that would destroy Dixter, he says. We raise money through study days, plant fairs, and so on, and plow it back into the garden student bursaries, and into employing local people. What's the succession plan now? There are four or five people who could take over, ex-students or gardeners, he says. Sir Roy Strong's garden, the Lasket in Hertfordshire, is a living archive of his life, his marriage to the designer Julia Trevelyan Oman, and, well, a rich cultural history. In 1999, the National Trust declined his offer to donate the Lasket because... In the words of a representative, the gardens did not meet our strict criteria on significance, nor did we believe that the National Trust needed to acquire the gardens to secure their future. In 2021, Perennial, formerly the Gardener's Benevolent Institution, accepted Strong's generous gift of the lasket and showcased it in a Chelsea Flower Show video earlier this year. They asked me to be a trustee for the lasket, 
says Strong about the garden he and Trevelyan Oman created from scratch from 1972. He refused. I've sat on every bloody committee in this country. That's it. There's only one way to live. Forward, says Strong, who started creating his new garden two years ago, a few miles down the road from the Lasket, although he adds that his ashes will join his wife's at his original garden. Eventually, Perennial will inherit a share of Strong's estate, he says, adding that the value of what I gave them was three million pounds, which is not an insignificant amount. Money, in millions rather than hundreds of thousands, is one of five tests that Perennial supplies to any garden legacy offered. The charity's chief executive, Peter Newman, explains the tests he follows. Is it a garden of significance? Is it idiosyncratic? Was it made with passion, skill, and love? Does it present any financial risk? Is it in the right place for the charity to spread its message across the UK? Is the garden given without any restrictions? Our day job is to look after horticulturists and garden makers, he said of the charity's core mission. The gardens we accept transmit our message, introduce potential supporters, and must run as profit centers, not cost centers. Endowments are crucial for institutions considering whether or not to accept a garden gift, although estimates about how much money is needed vary as wildly as the gardens. The trust uses a periodically revised formula to calculate the required endowment for a property to ensure it will have a sustainable future. This takes into account factors such as long-term cyclical maintenance tasks, a National Trust spokesman tells me. Armando Pizzoni Ardemani hopes that his family can continue to retain their 17th century gardens at Val San Zibio in Veneto, Italy, as they have for three generations. The eight-hectare garden was described by Edith Wharton in 1903 as one of the most beautiful pleasure grounds in Italy. Its historic trees, water tricks, allegorical statues, and maze are reached by a magnificent water gate, where gondolas used to glide from Venice in the days when canals stretched 60 kilometers to the great trading city. Its hard and soft landscaping are as delightful to visit as they are arduous to maintain. Pisoni has transformed Val Zancibio into a going concern by opening it to the public and selling a parcel of land to an American institution. He is also hoping for a 2 million euro EU grant. On the other hand, he says, I don't want to force the kids to take this on. He said his sons, aged 12 and 17, love Val Zancibio, but theirs is a childish love. This place can give you a lot of satisfaction, but it is a lot of responsibility. You have to have passion like I do, says Pizzoni, who wants to create a circular economy generating energy, plants, and animals from the estate, which includes 200 hectares of woodland. Passion and money help shape some of the world's most remarkable gardens and help some to outlive their creators. Derek Jarman's wild seaside garden in the Lee of Dungeness power station on the UK's south coast is helped along by three and a half million pounds from an art fund campaign which keeps gardener Johnny Bruce and others tending it for the future. The new owners of Peter Smithers Woodland Garden in Switzerland above Lake Lugano have the passion and understanding to keep the garden going to Smithers' plan, although it is never officially open to the public. Little Sparta, the beautiful complex seven-acre landscape created by artist Ian Hamilton Finley and his wife Sue in the Pentland Hills near Edinburgh is held together by a trust set up before Hamilton Finley's death in 2006. Other historically important private gardens, such as Rousham in Oxfordshire, for instance, have managed to keep going thanks to dedicated families who have owned their respective gardens for centuries. 
In the U.S., Oak Spring Garden in Virginia opens only occasionally, but showcases how important gardens can successfully pass on to future generations. Owner Bunny Mullen, who created two White House gardens, created her own over half a century. Glitterati, including Jackie Kennedy, were regular visitors. On her death in 2014, philanthropist Mellon left funds but no conditions about the garden or her estate. Her primary concern was her renowned library of manuscripts, books, and works of art relating to horticulture, landscape design, botany, and natural history. Sir Peter Crane, a former director of Kew, was appointed Oak Spring president in 2016, thus facing the task of transforming it from an idiosyncratic private domain to a place that scholars and artists visit from all over the world. He bought back land to recreate the core of the once 4,000-acre estate and set about restoring the gardens, mindful of Mellon's comment that gardens, like many beautiful things one thinks of will never change, never die. They follow the cycle of all living things, never remaining the same. The ever-changing gardens have never looked better, and quite apart from Mellon's helpful comment on the cycle of living things, she seems to have come up with an excellent formula for garden legacies. Involve the right people, throw in a sizable endowment, and make no condition. An article by Jane Owen, a contributing editor and Chelsea Flower Show gold medalist, published on the 14th of October in the Financial Times of London, How to Inherit a Garden, the Complexities of Horticultural Legacy. And that wraps up edition 178 of Green and Growing in the Garden, the weekly gardening program produced for the Los Angeles Radio Reading Service. Please send us your comments at www.lars.org or email us at onewordlaradioreading at gmail.com. Give us suggestions of gardens or stories to follow, your thoughts on a favorite story you heard, or what you think about the broadcast itself. Gardens are not just plants, soil, and irrigation. They speak to us of the world around us, even as we try to create order and structure. They connect us to our landscape and to the cycles of nature. They teach us patience, stewardship, and fortitude. They offer possibilities of beauty and of persistence, sometimes even of transcendence. And they open our senses to both the heart and the soul, to being alive, to being connected with other gardeners, other gardens, and other times. Whether in a container or in pots on a balcony in the city, in a defined, dedicated garden area, or planted around a suburban house, or in spaces surrounded by trees, landscape, and open sky, gardens are precious indeed, no matter where they are. I'm Hugh Ralston, your host. Thanks for joining us. Until the next time.